Yeah. Very excited to get you guys together and um, talk about a couple of things here. Um, we've got a show this weekend with uh, Willie and Cody Canada. The Acoustic Healing Tour is coming through California, which we're going to get to and talk about in a little bit. And uh, it also happens to just time out with the latest installment from our author friend, uh, Josh Crutchmer, uh, who is now um, added to his library after the very successful uh, Red Dirt book has uh, brought us now the Motel Cowboy Show, which has been fantastic. These are all my notes. And what a fantastic title. They're, they're all, great. they're not, great. by the way, these are not edits. They're, they're just uh, questions. <laughs> I already edited the book. <laughs> very, very good. Well, let's talk. Let's start with the, uh, with the book, Josh, uh, it's been out just, just about a month or so. Uh, what's, what's it been like so far to get it out and what's the reception been like? You've been hustling ever since this thing hit the streets. Yeah, I mean, um, look, Willie and his family let me release it at Braun Brothers Reunion, and it was it, it was a hit at the festival. Um, it's probably the only time in my life I'll ever get to feel like uh, those big arena stars that put their merch out before the show starts and everyone lines up, because that's what it was kind of like. Um, and the last month, the last month that, that just started a whole a kind of a wave of momentum, and um, it's done really well. It is... Um, I was I was very worried about this one because um, in Red Dirt there was no um, angsty frontman ca- coming out coming out of hiding to talk about his life, and I kind of thought maybe uh, there'd be a big drop up. But this was this book has been a wild success, and um, and I'm really proud of the uh, really proud of the response that um, it's got from not just readers, but I haven't except Willie. Willie found that it was riddled with typos, but we got all those fixed. Other than that, the artists I think have just been great about it, and that's been really cool and makes me want to write about ten more. Yeah, awesome. So you weren't joking, Willie. You did you did provide some editorial support on this? Oh, just a couple things here and there, but you know, I don't like who was homeschooled editing your book. I can tell you that. So I I just knew a couple of things just from living up here. That uh, I, think, so, I think Josh probably knew too, but uh, you know it's, it's hard to write. I made like 10 errors and they were all mistakes in songs Willie wrote. Like it was every, every fucking one of them was like, Oh, you got that lyric completely wrong. I didn't say that just over and over again. And the first two times I was like, that's kind of funny. And by the 10th time I was like, well, maybe I can just scrap this whole fucking thing. Shooting for accuracy. That is why, that's why you, uh, that's why you should build, um, enough of a rapport with artists that you can send them a book riddled with uh, mistakes and they will, um, they will give you shit about it, but they will also, um, they will also go above and beyond to make sure you get it right. That's yeah. Definitely. Willie talk about uh, the idea for this book. Uh, what was, what was your first thoughts on it? I mean, after the red dirt book, um, it's just a natural progression for Josh to, to come out West and, and talk about this kind of music. Yeah, I mean, he first mentioned it. I was kind of, uh, to be honest, I was a little skeptical. I was like, man, I don't know if anybody gives a shit about the mountain music <laughs> up here. You know, like, it's it's all people that nobody's ever heard of. You know, there's us and my family and Pinto and um, the other people in the book. But it's really special music to us and the people that live here, but outside of Idaho. I think it's pretty cool that he's able to kind of 
broaden that uh, fan base a little bit by, you know, the people that maybe read the Red Dirt book or um, have heard of some of the, you know, the motor cars or us or whatever. And uh, we'll be able to get turned on to the a little deeper into the roots of where our music came from, from Pino and Kip and Dad and all the other guys that just taught us how it's done. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's super cool. Super and I'm cool. almost done with it. I haven't read the whole thing yet. I, of course, cherry picked, you know, all the shit <laughs> first. And then uh, getting to well, the Red Dirt book. The Red Dirt <laughs> book is about Cody Canada, and he has not even read up to his part yet, which is most you of the book. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm surprised he didn't read only his part. The first, the first, like, I sent it to him, and like the first day he read like the first 40 pages of was texting me all this cool stuff about it. And now it's been like three years later. I'm like, hey, man, did you ever get to that one part that I put in there that? was uh just for you that, that i didn't tell anyone i was putting in there he goes what are you talking about all right well, there we go that's okay that's okay i didn't I, I don't expect artists to become uh to become book savvy but i still want to write about them that's the important no, part it's a good read man it's fun uh it's fun for me reading because uh i've read a bunch of rock and roll biographies and stuff yeah. like that. um it's fun reading one that it's all about your friends you know and I know all these guys and I know a lot of the stories and stuff, but it's, it's really cool just to see all the different perspectives of everybody's take on different stories and, you know, how this whole thing kind of shook out. I thought Willie that the, my favorite part about writing this book, which I liked even more than red dirt was red dirt was kind of, that was, you know, half stories and half history book. This was all, this was all just stories and the history just filled it in through the stories. And so every time I talked to you, it was, you know, let's meet up in whatever place it is you're playing for a couple of hours after sound check. And we just go grab drinks at a bar and pick a different topic. And, you know, that's how I learned, um, you know, behind about, you know, seven nights in Ireland and dozens of other stories, getting to hear those from you guys, but also realizing as you were telling them that they might've been stories you hadn't told in a while or forgotten. Um, yeah. There were a couple of artists that said when when they were done talking that this was kind of cathartic for me because I'd forgotten all this shit. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> seeing you guys react to it that way, like that, it made me happy because it made for good stories, but it also set a blueprint for me that's going to make all the rest of the books I write way easier because I noticed to go after those stories. Yeah, I think it makes it uh, just the way that, like you said, just meeting at a bar and having a few drinks yeah. and- kind of bullshit and it's yeah. more conversational and you're going to get more yeah. maybe more embellished stories but uh, <laughs> you can get better that's stories too. That, that's that's a reader's problem not mine yeah well i mean i probably saw probably some lawyer somewhere's problem if he if the wrong thing gets embellished but um i'll be i'll be halfway to a non-extradition country by then <laughs> That is really the way the book reads, too, Josh. It is a collection of stories, uh, and I like how you acknowledge that even at the beginning. And, you know, if people want to do more Wikipedia-style, detailed, you know, fact-checking or whatever, they can do it on their own. But it's the stories that really, you know, create the myth, that create the legend, and and really create the momentum for this whole uh, series of stories, really. Uh, because we do start with um, a lot of, you know, uh, Willie, your family's uh, history, but also their influences. Um, talk about that a little bit, because um, you you not only grew up with a, a musical uh, you know, father and brother, uncle and all those guys, 
but they had other guys that they looked up to as well. So it's like, you're, you're almost the third generation of this, right? Yeah. Our grandfather was a musician. Um, and like you said, all the, you know, our uncles and the bros and it's, this is definitely the third generation. And Hattie just got up and sang with Mickey for the first time. <laughs> the other day. So there's four. That's four. Uh, <laughs> and um, so, yeah, that's cool. And, yeah, I don't know. Like a lot of dad's influences were like his buddies, like Pinto is a great example. And, uh, you know, we, he became, you know, one of our guys and, uh, same with Attaway and you know, Chris Ledoux and, and guys like that, but, you know, uh, aside from, you know, the records that dad had from people that were not from Idaho, you know, the, the Texas stuff that kind of led us down to Austin. Yeah. Um, but the, the cool thing about to me for like most of these guys that we always looked up to, um, they became, or, you know, always were like our friends, you know, they, they were dad's buddies and stuff. So we, you know, we got the, the, there's a pretty unique experience, I think of really looking up to these guys, but being able to go and like talk to them about music and, you know, like write songs with Pino and, uh, hang out with these guys and have, you know, Cody, Teddy Ray showed Cody how to play fiddle licks and, Things like that that you don't really, you know, I can't go ask Bruce Springsteen, right? you know, <laughs> questions about songwriting, but <laughs> I could go ask Pino, you know. So that was pretty pretty awesome. Awesome. Uh, Josh, you start the Braun Brothers chapter talking about destiny. Um, at Willie, do you feel like growing up in that music, it was destiny for you and the brothers to, to make music? Like, I always tell people that I got into radio because I wasn't qualified to do anything else. So um, I have no other skills. So is is that, was it destiny for you guys? I don't know if destiny is the right word. It seems a little uh, too. Here we go editing again. That's a little too romantic. But, uh, <laughs> no, it was, it's always something that like, I, I think I kind of always knew we were going to do this and same with my brothers, you know, it's music has just been such a huge part of our lives always, you know, um, first time I ever sang on stage, I think I was like two and a half at a Christmas party. Cody and I got up and did Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And um, I always liked singing. I always looked up to dad, you know, even though I was just a, a little kid and I always wanted to you know, be like him. So um, it was definitely something that, you know, it's the family business. And that's, you know, kind of we had a pretty good idea that that's where we were going to go. And um, yeah, other than. For a very brief stint, I wanted to be a, a baseball player when I was about 12, but I wasn't any good, so I went back to music. One of my favorite parts of this book, as it relates to the Braun family, was there was everybody pretty much had a moment when they sort of just realized, oh, yeah, this is what we're doing. Um, and the way everybody came around to it was, was a little bit different. Um, you know, Mickey had the whole rodeo thing in his head for a bit, and Gary Gary was just straight up working and listening to the way that they talked about how they came back around to it. Um, but then when all that was done, going back and talking to Muzzy about when when he saw it and then matching all those up, that made for a really great read. Um, it's, it's, it was just this back and forth between entertaining and insightful, and it explains a lot to me about um, – probably more so than even the influences about, you know, why their music is what it is. Um, just the, the points in their lives when they realized um, this is what we're going to do. And yeah. that was probably my favorite part of the whole book was 
that topic right there. It was pretty natural too. Like dad and mom, they never you know forced us into it or anything. It wasn't even like they encouraged it so much as it was just around, you know. Yeah. And like Gary and Mickey took a couple of years off and were doing other stuff besides music for a while. But um, Gary was probably the last bloomer, you know, as far as getting really into it. But um, yeah, it's it's wild. We kind of all, like you said, Josh. It's, we all kind of figured it out in our own time and. Uh, but I think everybody kind of knew in a broad strokes kind of way that that's what we were going to end up doing. We're not good at anything else. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I, that's what I always said about my radio career is that this is, this is it. This is, this is the skill set. So I gotta, I gotta figure out how to make it work. Um, you mentioned, um, you know, there's a lot of artists in here that, that you mentioned that not a lot of people outside of the, of the West or the mountain West might even know. Um, which is another reason to get the book and another reason to read about these folks because people need to learn who some of these people are that, that influenced you guys. But one that I know uh, a lot of people know and a lot of people in California and specifically our area know is Chris Ledoux. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we're on kind of a rodeo circuit here, this market, our, our little area. He used to come to our fair all the time with his lavalier and his, uh, his uh, mechanical bull and his fireworks and everything. Uh, year after year after year after year. Um, speak to Chris Ledoux. I I guess I didn't quite make that connection until I was reading through this book. I was like, oh, yeah, they're just right next door to Idaho. There's no way Chris Ledoux didn't influence all of this music. Talk talk about him. Yeah. Um, the first time I ever heard of Chris Ledoux, he sent Dad a cassette tape, and I can't remember which one it was, but it was like a silhouette of a cowboy on a horse, probably Chris. Uh, and that was, I mean, I was probably six or eight years old, maybe 10, something like that. But, um, dad's like, oh yeah, this is this guy that we met in, uh, Elko, Nevada, this cowboy poetry gathering we used to go to every year. And, uh, Chris came and played and, uh, I, I remember like everybody at the poetry gathering, there's all real old school cowboys and, um, they had a lot of, there's a lot of music there as well, but there was. I think Chris is the first guy that ever brought a drum set, you know, and they were like, everybody was bitching like, Oh, they were so loud, you know, but I was like, that's the best goddamn show I've ever seen at this. Thing. <laughs> um, and then uh, KW who played with Pino, um and a bunch of other bands out here, the drummer, he played for Chris, he joined Chris's band. And then when that happened, we kind of like got a little more access to, to Chris because he kind of blew up after the Garth Brooks yeah. mentioned him in a song. And then, he had his uh his you know much larger success than he had when you know we were kids but then uh k dub was all of a sudden he's in the band and so you know they'd come through town or we'd be playing in the same spot or on the same bill or something and we'd get to go hang out with him and chris was always really cool like we didn't really get to know him really really well but um he was always really really nice to us you know and we'd go hang out and sit on the bus and met ned when he was uh k dub got in a car accident and Ned had been playing drums, so he filled in for K-Dub for a few months. And then when K-Dub got uh, healed up, he came back, and they had that's when they started the double drum thing. And uh, it was just always just a great show, and his songs are great. And he was just like, he's an icon out here in the West. Like, he's one of those guys. He's like the Jerry Jeff of the West, where everybody knows him. And like, oh, man, I met Chris one time, and we were drinking, and yada, yada. And so everybody's got a Chris Ledoux story out here. Um and he's like Elvis in, in Wyoming. I mean, guy could 
back when he was still around, he could have gotten away with all kinds of shit. <laughs> but he was just <laughs> <laughs> he kept coming up, didn't he, Josh? Yeah, um, and not just when I talked to the bronze. There's a great piece. Um, there's there's a great really long soliloquy that Mickey had in there that I just pretty much left intact about it. But um, he would just come up just just in passing and talking to folks and in the actual chapter about him um when you i thought ned was great but i thought mark um mark sissel i thought was who who manages ned now but used to basically work with chris his entire career um when you heard when you heard him talk about chris before the guard thing and then after and for everybody else in in his camp Suddenly, there was a Ledoux brand um, that they had to, to, to keep up. But, um, you know, there was a he was he was a singing cowboy, but it, they never let it get to Chris. And they just let Chris carry on um, exactly the way that he always had. And, you know, I thought that I think if that's a pretty cool thing if you're an artist to, to be surrounded by people that just want to make sure that you get to be yourself, even, even when you're singing duets with Garth and Bon Jovi is uh, name dropping you or whatever. Um, I thought that was really, really, really cool that he, that, that it wasn't just him, but all the people that he surrounded himself with just understood where he was from and what his life was about. And then worked with worked around him to make sure that uh, that was always the life he got to live right up till the end. Yeah. Yeah. He was authentic, you know, like, yeah. as authentic as it gets, you know, like he, uh, he was a real cowboy and so all the yeah. stuff he sang about, he really lived. And even if those songs that he didn't write, you know, covers that he did, he wouldn't do it unless he thought he really connected with the yeah. subject matter. And, um, yeah, I, I feel like if anybody was to ask me, like, who's the most authentic guy out there, I would say Chris would use hands down the guy. And Rest Josh between shit. <laughs> Between the the mountain uh, uh, music and the red dirt music, that is one thing that we have in common here. Um, it's a it's a collection of artists who have always had an independent streak and an authenticity about them. I think too. Um, it's look red dirt. Red dirt has become such a thrown around term that nobody knows where. It, it really came from. And that's part of the reason I wrote that book, but the fact that there was enough, um, brawn influence on red dirt from about 99 to 2009, that there could be an entire special edition of that book dedicated to reckless. Um, that was, it was pretty striking because you always just think these are overlapping friendships. And even I, I know these guys really well, and I know uh, how they interact personally and with their families, but, um, realizing how how much how how deep and important that overlap went um was striking so when when i went to write this book um i started from the default assumption that there were a lot of genres that were influenced by music from the mountain west and there were a lot of genres that were influencing that and i think chris was the very first person i thought of um just because his reach his reach was global, but his approach to music and his life, um, I mean, it would, it, it fit in in rural Wyoming. And I thought, I thought he was 
a great illustration of how far you can take just, you know, being yourself and making that type of music if you have the platform to do it. And that this, the, 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 the things he tied together um, and that Ned helped tie together when he talked for this book um, was really blew me away. Uh, he was such a good entertainer that you almost forget that he was also a world champion. Jesus, yes. Like for yeah. a long time before he ever really got famous as a musician, like really successful at two different really cowboy things, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. My and in the Hall of Fame. In the Hall of Fame for it, too. Yes, real things. My dad yeah. had a friend that never missed a national finals rodeo when it was in Oklahoma City and Years and years went by, and he passed. And um, hit this, his his widow. Um, when I don't even know if you'll hear this, but if you do, I'm talking about you. His widow again, kind of just said, "Here, look at all these buckles that Don had. You can have any of them." And I wanted the one from the year that Chris won, even though it was just the generic NFR buckle. Like that was the one everybody was buying the year he won. Uh, mm-hmm. And I was probably 18 when when I got that. That's um, cool. Then and, and so like he, yeah, he he's his he's his in my opinion, he's as cool as everybody ever thought he was. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, let's move the story down, uh, kind of pick up where we were talking about how these two things intersected. But when Willie, when you guys got to Austin, you decided to go to Texas. Um, and I asked Cody Canada about this last week when I, I talked to him as well. Um, you know what that, what that meant to get, to get to Austin and to see other bands uh, maybe like Cody's or Cody saw you guys and thought, okay, we're all, we're all doing something here. We're all doing our own thing. Like how did your background inform you, you know, to stay on that independent path and, and, and commit to, you know, just doing things the way you wanted to do it. Um, well, I, I think kind of really, especially for Cody and I, um, my, well, my brother, Cody, um, we, always just learned you know from dad growing up and gary and mickey as well just there was a lot more uh importance put on making good music than there was uh being commercially successful you know and it wasn't like we were not wanting to be commercially successful but the we just weren't we weren't going to go and and do anything that we weren't going to be proud of as far as making records and putting on shows that uh you know, no matter how much money they threw at us or whatever, you know, not that they ever threw any money at us, but uh, <laughs> we we always just put the music first and then moving down to Austin, that's kind of why we went there because it was all guys, that, you know, <clears throat> that we grew up like the Guy Clarks and Steve Earls and Robert Earls and, and guys like that that always put the music first and that was kind of an Austin thing. So that's why we went there in the first place. And then there wasn't very many bands in Texas at the time when we got there that were doing this kind of thing. You know, there was like Corey Morrow was doing it. And, um, well, those obviously the guys that had come before us, you know, the Robert Earls and, and guys like that. But, uh, there wasn't a lot of young bands. And then a lot of those guys started moving down from like Oklahoma, Ragweed and Stoney and Boland and, and those guys after a few years after we were in town, you know, they, they, then that, that whole scene kind of started to grow and snowball. And, uh, the, one of the coolest things about that scene that Cody always talks about, Cody Canada, is uh, it's it's really like everybody would go out and talk about each other. You know, they'd do one of our songs and they would always say, hey, this is by this band called Reckless Kelly. And 
uh, we'd name drop ragweed when we were doing our shows and, and everybody kind of did that. There wasn't a whole lot of competition. It was a lot more of everybody just being buddies and, um, helping each other out and spreading the word. And it's still on a pretty, you know, grassroots level, but it's gotten to be a lot bigger than it ever would have just because of the way we've all been promoting each other for, you know, 25 years or something. What'd you think when they did, when you first heard him do uh, Crazy Eddie's Last Raw? Okay, I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the money's going to flow now, right? (laughs) (laughs) No, (laughs) it was cool. It was uh, like... I, Cody had called me like a couple times and left messages and I totally like, I'm, I'm really bad at getting back to people and stuff. So like he called me like for a third time, like 10 minutes before they walked on stage at Billy Bob's and he was like, dude, can I record the song? I was like, yeah, absolutely. No problem. You know, but <laughs> it's, yeah, it was great. And then as soon as that record came out, like it was, you know, uh, that song was an instant, you know, favorite for our crowd, you know, so it was, it was great for us. Great story in the book about it too, Josh. That um, that story I think made both books um, because of the the exact overlap between the artists that I was focusing each book on. Um, I I was just getting into I, I was still in college and just starting to run with the Red Dirt guys when the day came out with that album on it, and um, it came out the album came out and within a week every band that would come to the Wormy Dog was covering that song, um, and it couldn't have been more than a month after that album was out that um, I ended up at a, at a show rag we was playing and they, uh, and they played that. And so that, that I've never, that was one of the fastest I've ever seen a song become kind of just a staple. There were other reckless songs that those guys in that scene covered, but I don't think any of them, would, I don't think it was anything was picked up when I was in Stillwater as fast as crazy Eddie's was. Um, there were five or six artists that if they came to the Wormy Dog would play it. Wade would do it. Ragweed, of course. There were there were a handful. It was really really fascinating to see. But I've never I didn't know Wade did that until I read the the book. <laughs> Wade did a <laughs> Wade did a uh, really cool version of it. And um, you remember Eric Woolley at the Wormy Dog, the owner? He oh, yeah. His girlfriend and now his wife was uh, Jody, and so Wade would change Jolie to Jody, and she would just lose her shit. It was great. <laughs> awesome yeah that's so cool I, I i love that part i love that part of the book love that part of the story uh one of the themes of the book josh i want to make sure we have a little bit of time for uh because it's just so it's just such a big part of this book it's also part of the red dirt book but it's also really why people like us that love music as much as we do um you know, look for it, search for it, learn about it, whatever. But the the idea that, you know, getting to learn where your music comes from. I wish more people would do this, uh, would would find something they like and and take the string and just start pulling back and unravel the whole story. Um, because I, that's really that's really one of the things this book accomplishes is at the end of it, you say you, you can't hear this music without thinking of the mountains, you know. Yeah. Um, and I remember telling people trying to describe Reckless Kelly and some of the bands, I would say, you know, there's, there used to be a thing called country and Western, uh, but we just call it country now. I said, but sometimes this is the Western part, you know, like you'd hear some of the songs like 
wild western wind blow man or the motel cowboy show and you'd be like that's the western part of country and western um and so you i think you summarize that really well with with the overall theme of the book i think there's the motel cowboy show especially i think there's that's that's a great example of a song you, you hear and the the picture that that the lyrics paint you know exactly what it is um, I've never been in whatever bar Willie was singing about, but I know exactly what it was like um, because I have been in that bar. Yeah, it's a attached to like a roadside now, be like a day's in or something. Um, <laughs> and nothing would nothing quite fit. And it would be all be wedged in. Um, and they have, would have this row of regulars on one side. Of the I could describe this. I could describe that bar having never been in it down to a T just because of, of, the, of the picture it painted because I I have been in that bar. And I thought in writing in writing Red Dirt because I am kind of tethered to it and um, grew up in it. I could insert myself pretty freely. Um, you know, there's pretty much there's not a chapter that goes by in Red Dirt that I didn't have some story to tell. Well, this I wanted to be more measured, and, and if I ever inserted myself into the story that I was writing, it was because I wanted to to move it along from one artist to another. But I also wanted to keep it in the context of I want you guys to know I like this music and this is what I've learned about where it came from. Um, you know, I think I probably there was probably a lot more experimenting as I wrote as it was happening than I have let on. Um, but that was another great takeaway. That's that's how I'm going to approach every scene I write about. Um, if I like it, I want to I want to follow these threads all the way to their conclusions. Awesome. You sound great, but I think that Phoenix heat is uh, frozen your phone right there. Oh, wait a second. You can <laughs> still hear me, but I just look, I just look like, okay. You kind of look like you're stroking out a bit. All right. Well, ask Willie a question and I'll refresh. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, let's, let's move into the, let's move into uh, off of that. Uh, or I'll give, I'll give you that same question. Willie. just the idea that, um, how important the, the the time and the place is to this music, um, even over the generations. Um, how important, you know, that is as a backdrop to what what you guys have lived through and what you guys do now. Um, well, like to your to your point, uh, that yes, Josh. Um, more people should uh, maybe I don't know should, but maybe would probably really benefit from learning where the music came from and where the influences came from. Like, you know, my dad was an influence on me and he listened to Merle Haggard and Merle Haggard listened to Lefty Frizzell, you know, and the farther back you dig into that, the more you understand about what you're doing. And, uh, I don't know. I feel like there's probably a lot of artists these days that don't dive that far back, you know, just for the, the way, just the way that you get your music anymore, you know, like a lot of people don't sit down and read liner notes anymore because there basically aren't any, you know, mm -hmm. but um, I think you got to have an understanding of where the music came from. And I think that's an important thing that that's in this book, you know, as far as as an artist, you know, and I don't know, I think the fans benefit from it as well because they get uh, the backstories and um, you get turned on to a lot of cool people from finding out who, your favorite band is you know who, who they were influenced by and go back and tom petty was influenced by the birds and i heard about the birds way before i heard about tom petty but i bet you he turned a ton of people onto the birds and you know that kind of thing so um yeah 
I feel like that's an important thing that's that's getting overlooked more and more these days that people don't really dive back as far as they ought to and they, they would benefit from it either as a listener or as especially as an artist mm-hmm. yeah because those people are are in your music uh one way or the other it's just like just like the mountains behind you there in idaho which look mm-hmm. amazing yeah. uh you also can't you also can't take the people out of the music that influenced you either they are there they're part of the dna yeah yeah for sure and like i don't know like i i write most of my stuff when i'm up here or at least finish most of my stuff up here and uh i guarantee it'd be different if i wrote it anywhere else you know the stuff that i write up here is really different from the stuff that i write in austin um probably has a lot to do with you know just different time periods or where i was or how old i was or yada yada but i think there's a huge huge impact of just being up here you know looking at these mountains sitting on the porch getting away from everything and uh and then like you said the characters the people that are around here there's like a real you know the the crystal dews and you know there's like i live in the middle of the huge ranch right here you know there's all these ranch hands running around and um there's people out here digging holes as we speak you can probably hear them in the backhoe in the background and stuff but it's a real like I don't want to use like real, you know, cause it's not like, you know, people that live in the city aren't real. That's not what I mean, but it's a real, like, I don't know, I guess old school kind of laid back vibe. And that really lends itself to writing just soaking. Once you get here for a few days and you soak yourself into this vibe of just kind of like hanging out on the porch, it helps a lot to just slide into that writing mode. Awesome. Josh, talk about the format. I'll, I'll you, we'll finish up on a couple questions about the format of the book, too, because uh, we talked about how it's 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 not necessarily, you know, an in-depth history book, but it's a it's a book of stories. But also based on your background of writing concert reviews and following the music, um, we've got festival reviews in here and we've got uh, some roundtables. Uh, it, it really is a, a hodgepodge of different approaches, which I, I absolutely love. So talk about how you, you come up with the format for it. So um, about 10 years, about eight or 10 years ago, um, Todd Snyder put a book out and it was, it was just a collection of stories that he tells on stage. It was like the KK writer story where the girl knocked the lead singer out by flying across from this, swing in the bar and Todd stepped in and finished singing a Jerry Jeff Walker song or a Rusty Weir song, I think. Um, and it was just a collection of those stories. And I read it and I was like, this is just the same stories he tells on stage. And that was the first time I actually thought that I could write a book, but I knew that what I would have to do would be to figure out how to get stories like that out of artists without just going to their concerts and hitting a record. Um, and it took, it took about five years before I found that formula. But I also found that every artist responds, you know, every, they're different human beings. They all respond a little differently. And the ones that just, the ones that you could just ask one or two questions to, in the book, Susie Boggess being a great example, the ones that you could just ask a, one question and she'll tell five different stories without you saying a word. When I hear them do that, that was sort of my um, that was my my cue that this this chapter is going to be just a Q and A format, and I'm going to get out of the way. Um, but it had its roots in that Todd Snyder book, mostly true tall tales um, that I read, and, and every now and then I just go back and read 
because I just thought it was the first time I had seen written down um, something translate the same way that it would have if the person was saying it on stage. And I studied that for a good long while. And the other the other side of that, though, is I I work for the New York Times. I'm a trained journalist. I'm frankly pretty good at it. So I still have a job. And this is not a frankly no frankly there's not a lot of music journalists that really will apply old school journalism to their work um, because of the demands on them to to get clicks and views and whatever uh, over the past twenty years. But at the moment, I don't have those restrictions, and so I'm free to just be a journalist. And sometimes being a journalist means you go to a festival and review it. Um, if you ever see me at a Reckless Kelly show or a Turnpike Troubadour show, I'm always writing the set list down because I can't turn that off. I'm always just like, here's the set list, and Willie said this on stage after this song. And I just have my notes app is just full of that. And sometimes I don't think I'm ever going to use it. Um, but then sometimes I turn into an entire chapter of reviewing uh, the 2022 BBR or the Jackalope Jamboree Festival. Um, and that was just from being there and recognizing that this was – a lot of fun. And if I can just capture that, it'd be a good chapter. Absolutely. And one of the couple of the chapters in this book, uh, both the Braun Brothers reunion that you mentioned, but also uh, the the Red Rock show with uh, Reckless and the guys and Turnpike Troubadours, um, which is which is both. I bring that up for a couple of reasons, because I want to talk about the state of the music these days. Yeah. But uh, but before we get to that, um you know, Willie, talk about the Braun Brothers reunion uh, as now it's become sort of a cornerstone for uh, pretty much all the music that we talk about in this book. It's a it's a great culmination of that kind of music to be able to put it up, put it up and put it out there in your guys's hometown and and do that. It's got to be super special. Yeah, man, <clears throat> it's it's pretty wild to be able to come back to your hometown and throw a big party like that, you know, and dad and mom have been doing it for years before we uh ever had a hand in it but it started out with like three or four local bands on a flatbed truck in the city park and you know um it turned into a multi-day festival and built a stage and started bringing our buddies from texas and other people that we know from the scene and uh bringing out some of our heroes etc etc but like you know but being able to have like Steve Earle come out to Idaho and play in your hometown at your festival and, you know, jump up on stage and sing a song with them and stuff. And like, those things are like, it's, it's hard to even imagine. Like I wouldn't have put it on my bucket list cause I never thought it would happen. You know, like, it's impossible. Right. And then the community that's kind of, uh, comes every year to the reunion. A lot of people have met there. They've discovered other bands. I think we've turned a lot of, people on to this music up here from that festival um brought them up here for the first time and then now they're all coming up here on the circuit and they're going and playing other shows and you know selling out shows in boise and idaho falls and uh i think it's done a lot for the bringing that different americana music to idaho because i don't know if a lot of those guys would have ever even bothered to stop in idaho if we hadn't invited them to come to the reunion yeah. And Josh, I think the service that, that you provided now, uh, having someone um, elevate uh, these bands in Rolling Stone or wherever, wherever else, uh, whether it's the books or the or the online, 
Um, we really haven't had advocates like like that um, in the last five to 10 years. But that seems to be uh, something that's helping elevate all of these bands, you know, next level, uh, sort of a third party validation. I thought, um, I mean, you look around the this the, the scene of the, the broader concept of Americana. When I say that, I basically mean anybody without a record deal at this point. But you look at you, you're not, you look at, at, at Turnpike and Tyler Childers and these these bands that are playing these arena shows and selling them out now, and um, that's sort of a product, for better or for worse, of the of the era that we're in, in which um, is the, a, a lot of suits a lot of suits don't have the control they did at least over everything, and it's it's opened some strange doors. That's also been true for me. Um, the fact that I work for the New York Times, but the New York Times has said, don't come to us with your red dirt stories, but you're free to take them under Rolling Stone has really liberated me to not have to worry that my day job will be impacted and has given me the freedom to go be a journalist for Rolling Stone about this music. It's, it's, it, I, I can see, I can see how, an artist can just catch fire if they if, if they have a path and a plan, and that that's what's happened to me writing about it. Um, I, I don't I I won't do no brainer stories, and I don't want to do them for as long as I don't have to. I won't. I just want to tell good and interesting stories, and even if I'm just breaking news, even if, if for, to 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 bring it full circle, if I'm breaking a story that Reckless is going to wind down touring, I don't want to just write that in 500 words. I want to. I want to go back to Willie and sit in his lounge and talk to him about it. And I want to talk to the whole band about it. And as long as I have, I, that is a privilege and it's a luxury that I have, but it is, it is very much a product of 2023 when there, there is just this void in journalism, music, music journalism, especially. And at the moment, it's just a wide open door that I'm just walking through. Yeah. And Willie, talk about the, if you want to call it Americana, we can loop in the ma mountain music, the red dirt music, the Texas music, independent music, or as Josh said, pretty much anybody with their own kind of independent deal or, or not part of any kind of corporate structure. That It seems bigger now than it ever has been. Yeah. Like uh, Josh is saying, there's guys out there filling up stadiums that aren't signed to a major label deal. And, uh, like I back to Chris Ledoux, he was doing that before he was ever with Capitol Records. He had an enormous following yeah. of rodeo cowboys and people in that scene. And uh well before he was on Capitol Records, um, he was selling a lot of tickets. And um we kind of have done the same thing on a very smaller scale, but uh we got all of our fans one at a time, you know, like pretty much like it's it was never like one big hit or, you know, a big tour or anything. It was just, you know, hitting the road and playing these clubs and getting fans one at a time. And I think when you get them that way, they stick with you forever because they have this sense yeah. of ownership. You know, they're like, oh, this is my band and I discovered them. You know, they didn't, mm -hmm. nobody told anybody about us. It was, they came and just happened to see us at, you know, some club one night or heard us on xm radio or something and then they feel like they own a little piece of the band you know whereas uh you know a bigger act that just hits all over the place and you know the entire country or across the world like everybody knows about those guys but if you if you've discovered some little band that nobody else has heard about it you feel a lot cooler and you'll you'll stick around for a while <laughs> 
Yeah. And, you know, there, and there's a certain amount of music fans, and I'm sure you've come to grips with this, that that only follow the the herd. They only follow the what's popular at the time and they, they come and go. Um, but like you said, your, your fans are a special breed because of that ownership. Um, but you've had to come to grips with that over the years, right? You're not, you're not going to get everybody all the time because people come and go. They're kind of fickle. Yeah, for sure. You know, I mean, it's, it's worked out great over the long haul, you know, but, um, 25 years ago, I would have, I, I thought that it was probably going to be, you know, a whole different career path. You know, we thought we were going to be bigger than the Beatles and just be <laughs> wildly famous, you know, <laughs> but I'm, I'm happy the way it's all worked out. And like I said, it's, we've got a great fan base that took a while longer to, to build, but, um, I don't know. In a way, it's a lot more rewarding. It's like backcountry skiing, you know, earn your turns. You climb up the mountain and then ski down. It's a lot more rewarding than when you take the chairlift. <laughs> Reckless, I, I, I did see, I did watch, I did personally watch Reckless fans sell out the Ryman in about an hour um, for next week's show. So um, there's the, 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 there's a, there's a really fun following of Willie's fans out there right now that are pretty excited. So that's pretty cool. That is pretty cool. Uh, Josh, what do you think the future is, uh, you know, for this music and as we continue to go? Um, and is there is there another book in the uh, works? Uh, you got another niche to carve out here? Because I see it a lot of Jason Isbell shows. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> well, yes. Um, yeah, you know, obviously. Here's the thing about uh, about Jason specifically is that Jason. I actually approached Jason in 2020 about um, having a part in the Red. I actually thought he would be a great person to write the intro because he wasn't from Red Dirt, but he plays all those venues. And that's when um, that's when I learned from him and his manager that he was working on that documentary that came out in the spring. That was being filmed as I was approaching him. Um, and so for the uh, for the moment, um, I kind of enjoy just, he's, he's one of the few artists that I can just go and enjoy, but there were other artists that I used to feel that way about too. Like I'm never going to cover these people. And then, and then one day you're the, uh, you're the whisperer for the turnpike troubadours. I just, I never envisioned it working out that way. So I will never say never. Um, and I'm always looking for opportunities to tell stories like that. But, um, on a broader scale, I think, I think that, Americana music and independent music. It's, it's in a, it's in a moment right now. And I think, look, it's all, it's always going to be money driven, of course, but I do think there are enough people who are in on the business side of it that want to see it thrive like it is that I think it can sustain this. I don't know if it'll be forever, but I think, I don't think we're going to see, you know, Tyler Childers go back to, dance halls anytime soon. I think, I think he's going to be an arena band for a good while. And um, I think if reckless plays the Ryman again in a year, I think it's going to sell out in an hour again. Um, I think this is from a, from perspective, it's a good time to be a fan. And it's also, it's also a good time to want to tell the stories about it. And so what's next for me? Um, Look, I, I'm in Phoenix right now, and I would love to talk about. I would love to get into the history of that. Um, I would love to tie the the gin blossoms to to Roger Klein and all the way back to to BBR because I can do that. Um, you know, I think uh, I think BJ that wrote 
BJ Barham, who wrote the forward to Red Dirt, has a great story, and I hope he tells it one day. And at some point very soon, I don't know if I don't know if it'll be this year or next, I wanna go I wanna go back to Oklahoma where I'm from and I wanna I wanna spend a good long while with the Great Divide and write about them in a little bit different way because I've already written Red Dirt. But I want to I want to capture this second rise they're having now that everybody is sober and 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 loving life and they're filling up pretty good sized venues again. And I want to kind of document that for a bit and then thread that back out in sort of the reverse of the ways I've done the first two books. And um, you'll find all the artists that may or may not realize that they have a tie to them. So I've got four or five topics in mind, but uh, uh, um, as long as I'm capable of writing, I'm going to keep telling these stories um, and writing books like this because it's a lot of fun. And I, with Motel Cowboy show that I can do it. I love that. I love that. Um, last question on the future for you, uh, Willie. Um, you know, it's been a, a little while since, and it was Josh who uh, broke the news that Reckless is going to sort of wind down that massive touring schedule that you guys are used to keeping. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned you mentioned in the book, you know, this is the way it's been since you were a kid, so you're looking forward to doing some other things. Um, it's been a while now. Are some other things presenting themselves, and what might those other things be shaping out to be? Man, uh, I haven't really got much of a plan, to be honest with you. You know, like we're still got a couple of years away from reckless, you know, winding down the touring thing. We're definitely playing a lot less shows right now, but try to do a few uh, more acoustic things here and there. I'll probably end up, you know, doing more as the the years go by, but. Um, I'm doing a four shows out in California with Cody next week, Cody Canada, and um, yeah. starting tomorrow morning at the crack of shit. I'm uh, heading that way. <laughs> uh, but uh, no, I don't know. I honestly don't have much of a plan for like the long term, other yeah. than I know I'll still be playing music and um, uh, other artistic stuff, you know, here and there. But uh, for the most part, for the next few years, um, as long as I can make ends meet, I'll spend as much time just hanging out, sitting on the porch and fly fishing. And backpacking. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely. Talk about this tour coming up with Cody. Um, I've been trying to tell my audience, this is, this is kind of a rare thing for us. I mean, in, in Texas and, and other circles, uh, you might get a guitar pole, you get guys sitting around telling stories, doing acoustic shows. Um, but it's been trickier for artists to come out West and do it in the same frequency in which you, you would do it back there. Um, so this is a very, very special show, very unique format. Um, and Cody says he, he doesn't know why it took so long, but he finally, uh, asked the agents, Hey, if you get a chance, hook me up with Willie. And then all of a sudden it's happening. Yeah, man. It's, it's crazy that we haven't done this before really, but, um, no, we, we've been talking about it for for years and finally, you know, it, it worked out, but, uh, yeah, him and I are really good buddies, so it'll be a, a cool dynamic on stage, you know, because it's it's always different when you see a song swap like that when the two people up there are are pretty tight and you know we've known each other for twenty five thirty years and um, their fan base knows our fan base and vice versa and we'll have you know lots of stories to tell and um, yeah it's also I like when there's like two guys on stage it's, you can see song swaps with three or four guys and that's also cool but I. I particularly like the ones where there's only a couple guys up there. Cause you get to really hone in on, you know, 
the, the two different guys up there. And then, you know, cause if you got three or four guys, there's a tendency for the, when you're not playing, you got to sit through three songs, not yeah. sit through them, but you sort of lose focus a little bit. Whereas if there's only one other guy, you can spend three minutes thinking about what you want to do next and, you know, tune your guitar and put a capo on or grab your harmonica, <laughs> have a little bit more of a plan without kind of spacing out. And all of a sudden you're like, Oh shit, it's my turn again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Josh, you, you agree. You, you, this is a rare format for us, but you've seen this over the years and it's special. Yeah. Look, I mean, I grew up, I, I grew up with in, in Stillwater where those shows happen you know, every night of the week. And it was, you know, somebody who's still making music to this day. Um, I have those those type of shows have a, a special place to me, um, not just because of the the style and the music is different, but the artists are in a different headspace. Um, and when it's more intimate like that, you get a lot of laughs and some good stories. And um, I mean, I hope Willie's right. I hope we do see more of it, especially from him, because he's got he's one of the best in the world at both of those stories and laughs. Um, and all that is supplementing, um, songwriting and music. And it's, it's very much worth it. And I hope people do, you know, fill these places up on this tour. Awesome. Well, we've been talking about the book, the motel cowboy show, uh, with Josh Crutchmer, the author, and of course, Willie Braun from reckless Kelly, uh, who's also a big part of the book because it talks about the music that uh, he grew up around and grew up in. And uh, we really can't wait for uh, Saturday night's show this Saturday night, Willie and Cody Canada. It is um, at the Siren in Morro Bay, the Acoustic Healing Tour. Really looking forward to it. Uh, you said something there, Josh, maybe you want to ask Willie an impossible question. Who is the funniest of the four Braun brothers? Uh, oh, that's a tough one. That is a tough one. It depends on the Depends on the day. Ah, yeah. that's a that's a push. But they all have their own. Uh, we all have our own uh, different styles. But you know, we we, we kind of combine forces a lot because yeah. <laughs> a lot of quote alongs and uh, inside jokes and and bits that we bounce off of each other. So it's kind of a, a team effort. But I'd have to say Mickey probably if I had to narrow it down to one. You had to pick <laughs> Mickey. Yeah. How about what do you think, Josh? Look. Um, Mickey, I think I probably agree with Willie, but Mickey also, if you see Mickey walking up to you from any distance away with this sort of half grin on his face, like just, just wait to hear him out. Whatever he's going to say is going to be the funniest thing you've ever heard in your life. <laughs> the funniest one in the family is Uncle Billy, though, hands down. That's <laughs> <not a> <laughs> nice. We, nice. All just, we all strive to be as funny as Uncle Billy. <laughs> That's right. great. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna throw Gary out there. Uh, I'm gonna, Gary's told me some stories and some jokes that you know I, I can't repeat in most polite company. Um, and he's always got one ready for me. It seems like so. So Gary I'm, doesn't edit himself very much either. So that's that's <laughs> he's a volume he's a volume shooter. Yeah, there's no, yeah. There's so, no maybe I shouldn't say this or look around before I say it. No. <laughs> The funny thing about Gary is like the first three times I met him, he didn't say anything to me, not one word. And then ever since it's, it's been great. It's, it's been hilarious. So jokes and, and whatnot, guys, thank you for the time. I'm sorry to keep you so long, but I appreciate the conversation. And uh, again, look forward to seeing also uh, Willie, we're going to see in October 
uh, Rebels and Renegades in Monterey yeah. is right up, right up the road from us, and that is going to be an epic, epic three-day uh, festival up there. They've done a great job. We got uh, we got Wilco, Turnpike, uh, Whiskey Myers, you guys, Flatland, Shane Smith. The, the, awesome. uh, the, the list goes on, and I think Charlie Crockett plays the day you're there. Paul Coffin is there. It, it's going to be a ridiculous festival, and we look forward to seeing you guys up there, too. Awesome. Yeah, man. Can't wait. Make that trip. Thank you, guys. Appreciate right, it. Thanks, Pepper. Appreciate thanks, it. Guys. See you this weekend. Josh, travel safe. Thanks, right, Pepper. Really, you travel safe, too. You too, pardon. We'll All see right, you. Thank you, guys.